This is Bo Buchanan. I'm here with another edition of On the Level, and I'm speaking to past Grandmaster Rex Hutchins. Rex, can you introduce yourself, uh, say your home lodge, and any titles you have related to Freemasonry? I belong to several lodges. My mother lodge is Epps Randolph Lodge Number 32 in Tucson. I am presently actively attending Adobe Lodge Number 41, which I am a member of. It's a traditional observance lodge and uh, so it's a little bit more to my liking. Do you remember when you first discovered Freemasonry? I knew about Freemasonry for reasons which I cannot explain. I guess just the osmosis in our society where you pick up information about Masonry. But I bought a house from a widow of a Mason and when I moved into the house, I found a master's carpet, a, a uh, linen apron with pen and ink drawings of Masonic symbols on it. And it was in a frame and was from Connecticut and it was dated 1805, I think. And I realized it had been left there by the widow I bought the house from. So I took it over to her and offered to return it to her, and she said she didn't want it. So I took it back home and hung it on the wall because I thought it was pretty. <laughs> this caused a couple of friends of mine who were police officers who had taken some college courses in anthropology uh, that the university offered that I taught at the police academy uh, as a night school program for the University of Arizona. And one of them said to me, you shouldn't have that. You don't even know what it is. And I said, well, it's some kind of Masonic thing and I like it. He says, well, I should have it and you shouldn't. And I said, well, I have it and you don't. And that, <laughs> that kind of was our conversation. Whenever he would come over to my house, he would remind me that he should have that and I shouldn't. And one day I got tired of hearing it, so I gave it to him. Oh, really? And he took it home and hung it on his wall, and when I'd go to his house, there it was. But this caused me to ask him the question, what's that all about anyway? And he gave me a petition. And I put the petition in the glove box of my car, and it sat there for a year. Where was this? In Tucson. It was in Tucson, okay. And uh, then I took it out and turned it, filled it out and turned it in. And that's how I got my first three degrees. And that was, I got my first degree in, I think, late August of 1982. And then I got my second and third degrees by September 15th. And then over the next couple of months, I took the York Rite degrees, I took the Scottish Rite degrees, I joined the Shrine. And then in January of 1983, I joined the Research Lodge. And then I stopped and decided to investigate what it was I had just done. <laughs> so what took place in that year time period when that was in your glove box? What was it that kept eating at you and, and making you curious about this? <clears throat> I can't say that there was a whole lot there. I put it in the glove box and didn't think much about it. Uh, I had other things going on in my life and those were distracting me, I guess. And uh, I just, one day I happened to get into the glove box for something, I don't know what, 
and there it was laying there and I thought oh yeah I should have built this out <laughs> so I built it out and uh, that's how I became a mason so I guess I might be able to say a dead guy made me a mason or got me on the path to becoming a mason because he had passed away and his widow had accidentally left because it uh, that, oh, are there that any master's carpet which obviously belonged to him and later on I found out uh, that that uh, deceased brother Dr. Grauman uh, was from the Grauman Chinese theater family in California in California and he was a past master of uh, Tucson Lodge number four and uh, so I Wow, where is that apron today, do you know? I still have it. You have it now, so you yes. got it back from that brother. On the night of my third degree, that brother returned it to me. Oh, that's, that was some class right there. That yeah, was classy. that was nice of him. And uh, so I still have that as a souvenir of how I became a mason. Wow, that's an awesome story. So yes. after you, as you put it, I had to investigate what I just did, right? What, what was that path like? What did you do? Well, I had an interesting thing that occurred. I had taken the Scottish Rite degrees and over a weekend, like you do. And on that following Monday, I had come down to the Scottish Rite Cathedral and said to the secretary there, what can I do? I said, I did some drama work in high school and college, and I can memorize lines and maybe take apart some degree. And he, he said, no, those are all taken care of. We don't need anybody for that. And I said, well, I could take one of the non-speaking parts and just stand there with a spear if you need somebody for that. And he said, no, those are all taken care of. So I said, well, I was a waiter in college, working my way through college, and I could work with the, maybe the dining room crew or something. He said, no, that's all taken care of. We don't need you for anything. And I said, okay. So I went over to York Rite and I said, you guys got anything for me to do? And they put me in all three lines and gave me a part in every degree. <laughs> so I became a York Rite Mason. I did not attend Scottish Rite meetings. I only attended York Rite meetings. But I had received a book from Scottish Rite called Clausen's Commentaries on Morals and Dogma. And in that book, in the introduction, Clausen says, this book is not intended to replace Morals and Dogma. And so I knew Morals and Dogma was a book, but I'd never heard of it before. And so I went down to the Scottish Rite to that same secretary and said, I wondered if he had a copy for sale of Morals and Dogma. And the secretary said, you don't want that book. <laughs> and I said, well, I'd like to look at it. And he says, no, nah, you don't want to look at it. It's a waste of time. You don't want that book. And he would not give me a copy of Morals and Dogma, and I argued with him and argued, and finally, he, just to get rid of me, he said, okay, here, and he gave me a copy of Morals and Dogma and charged me $2 for it, <laughs> and I took it home, and I read the first page, and I knew exactly what the problem was, that from 1860, when that book was first published, till the 1960s, 60s when they stopped giving it to 14th degree Masons, the priorities in education had changed and uh, Pike rightly expected that a high school student would have had some Latin, some Greek, 
some classical mythology and would have gone home to a house where the Bible was read every day. And so the messages uh, that are in Morals and Dogma that are couched in that kind of assumption um, became irrelevant by 1960 when nobody took Latin, nobody took Greek, nobody took classical mythology, and nobody read the Bible. And so all of the foundation pieces that were essential to understanding morals and dogma had been erased from public education. And that's why the average basin doesn't understand that book. Is when in 1860 the average high school student student would have found it perfectly clear. And so I knew what was wrong and what needed to be done, and I started to work on the glossary to Morals and Dogma first, to just read through it and find every word that somebody might not know because they don't have any familiarity with classical mythology, because uh, there were a lot of classical references. And uh, I kept running into oblique references to various scriptural citations and stuff like that. And so I stopped and went down to the Scottish Rite and bought another copy of Morals and Dogma, which I began to underline in that one all the biblical passages and citations and allusions and little metaphorical comments and that sort of thing. And uh, as I continued to produce the glossary, I'm reading Morals and Dogma, and I'm saying, you know, there, there are topics in here that the average person doesn't get much input about. Druids, Knights Templar, uh, particular characters like Josephus, particular cultures like the Greek or Persian culture before Islam. Uh, those kinds of things. And so then I started a third book, the first one being the glossary, the second one being the biblical references, and the third one being essays on those individual topics. And I worked on those. Understand, I'm not attending any Scottish Rite meetings. <laughs> not at all when you're writing. None. I'm working on morals and dogma at home, and I'm going to York Rite meetings. <laughs> And then the treasurer of the York Rite became Venerable Master of the Scottish Rite. And he asked me if I would be his Tyler. Now, I've never attended a single Scottish Rite meeting. So I said, sure, I'll do it for you. How do you say no? And so the first meeting I ever attended in Scottish Rite, I was a Tyler. And I thought it was not a progressive officer position because it's not in Blue Lodge at least not in my blue lodges. And so I thought I would be Tyler for a year for this particular brother, and then that'd be it, I'd go back to York, right? And that'd be that. But that turned out not to be true. It turned out that Tyler was the bottom of the progressive line, and so the next Venable Master appointed me to the next job up. So there, all of a sudden, there I was, going to Scottish Rite stated meetings, finally. And, uh, As Tyler. <laughs> yeah, so I kept working on the glossary and the biblical references inventory and the essays on the particular topics and individuals like Josephus, and, you know, who's mentioned in the ritual. Uh, 
that sort of thing. And is mentioned several times in Morals and Dogma. So that all went on and then it became 1987. And in 1987, I went to the Supreme Council session in Washington, D.C. Now, what were you doing in, at this time in your life? Were you working? Were you... I was teaching anthropology at the university. Okay. Uh, what university? Arizona. Arizona State? Yeah, I was working. No, Arizona. University of Arizona. University of Arizona. In Tucson. Okay. And I was working with the continuing education department doing mostly courses off campus. And okay, so you were already in the education field and this was kind of a natural yeah, progression for you? Yeah, I got a master's degree in Oriental Studies from the university and then I had been working on a PhD in educational anthropology. Uh, and I got my PhD in 1983. Okay, so not long before this, okay. And so I was finishing up my PhD and doing my early interest in masonry uh, pretty much the same time. So anyway, in 87, I went to the Supreme Council and said, do you guys have any interest in this? And it was really very amusing because uh, the SGIG for Arizona at that time, Barry Casey, uh, had said he would get me a meeting with the Committee on Ritual and Ceremonial Forms and have them take a look at some of the stuff I did and see if they had any interest in it. Um, because I had worked up the particularly the glossary, so that if you were reading Morals and Dogma and you came upon a word you didn't know, a reference to a character or a Civil War battle or who knows what, um, you actually could look it up alphabetically in this book and it would not only tell you why Pike put that reference there and what it was a reference to, but would tell you every other place it occurred in the book by page number. Uh, so it was a useful, I thought, useful tool. I used it myself when it was half done. Uh, so I thought they might have an interest in it, and so I took it out there. And I uh, waited and waited, and nobody talked to me, and finally it got to be Tuesday morning, and everybody's getting ready to leave. And so I see Barry Casey sitting over in the corner lighting up a cigar, which you could do in those days. And I went over and I said, Barry, you never did get me a meeting with the ritual committee, and I've been standing around here for three days waiting. And he said, oh, I forgot about that. And he runs over and he starts collecting these SGIGs, and we all march into the um, Supreme Council meeting room, the one with the choir chairs where they sit when they have meetings of the Supreme Council. And they all sat down. And uh, somebody, I don't remember who, said, so what do you got? So I'm standing up in front of these guys, very nervous, because I don't know anything, you know, who these guys are. And they're all very officious and <laughs> sitting there with their purple hats on, wondering what this kid has. Uh, How old were you? I was 45. 45, okay. And, uh, or close to it, maybe 44, uh, something like that. Because I'd been in, it was 87, I'd been a Mason about five years. And I was 
39 in September when I got my degrees and I turned 40 in November, so it was that close. Um, anyway, so I told him what I was doing. And all of a sudden, Jim Rogers, SEIG of Alabama, jumps out of his chair and says the following in a loud voice, it's from God, and runs out of the room. <laughs> I kid you not, this is true. I've never told anybody this. Well, I've told a couple people, but never for recording. And they all jumped up and ran out. And I'm standing there in that room all by myself with this big pile of books that not one of them has even looked at. And I don't know what to do, so I just stand there. <laughs> and I stand there and stand there, <clears throat> five, ten minutes goes by, and finally Barry Casey comes back and he says, Fred wants to see you. And I said, who's Fred? I don't know from nothing. And it turns out he's a grand commander. See Fred Kleinconnect. And as we're walking to Fred's office, Barry Casey says to me, I think he's going to make you a cardinal. And I, I walk into the alcove of Fred's office, not actually in Fred's actual office, but in the outside where the secretaries are. And Fred's standing there talking to some people, and I'm introduced to him. And he looks me in the eye, and the only thing he says is, I'm going to make you a red hat. Well, I thought that was a great idea. <laughs> and I said, thank you. <laughs> now, all the people from Tucson that had been made red hats had been made red hats the day before on Monday. So I, cause I, so I was not on the list, and no phone call was made to Tucson that this had happened. And so I came home at KCCH without anybody, even the secretary, knowing it. The best Barry Casey knew? K Barry Casey knew. He was standing there. But he was the only one from Tucson who knew. Um, By the way, maybe, do you know what, do you know what maybe the Maybe the personal rep, because he was out there. Do you know what the S stands for in his name? Oh, S. Barry Casey? No, I don't. I don't either. Okay. I do not have any, any clue. He never did ever say Everybody called him Barry. I know, I've been there Everybody and I know... called him Barry, so it... Did they? Yeah. Was, I've seen his, his uh, portrait hanging at the Scottish Shrine. Maybe it's like Harry S. Truman, it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> anyway, that's exactly what happened. And what what turned out to be the case, why, why Jimmy Rogers said what he said and everybody got all excited, was unknown to me at the last meeting of the Supreme Council in that session... Fred Kleinknecht had said to the Committee on Ritual and Ceremonial Forms, you must find a replacement for Clausen's Commentaries on Morals and Dogma by the next session. Oh, my gosh. And they walked out of the room, and there I was. Oh, my gosh. That's why he said... It's from God. That was what incited that nonsense. So that book, was that Bridge to Light? No. That was just was the glossary? the glossary and the Bible thing and... Uh, and some of the essays, not even all of them, some of the essays that eventually became the book Pillars of Wisdom. So to, to give a lot, they decided they had somebody who could write it. And so I had a meeting that afternoon with the um, 
Committee on Ceremony, Ritual and Ceremonial Forms and Fred and Fred said, just go to work on it, get it started. We want a book that's a bridge, that was the word they used, between morals and dogma and the ritual. And that's how you came up with the title. And so then that's how I came up with the title. And uh, I started to work on it. I went, came home and started to work on it. How long did it take you to, to write it? Well, I played around with some ideas that, that my wife Cheryl suggested that were really good ideas. And um, they made it a little bit easier to put some of the material together. Uh, much of what she put she put together. I mean, in, she's in your the, editor. You've said before she's always been your editor. Oh yeah, and uh, in fact, she wrote entire parts of that book. And I, I told Fred her name ought to be on it, but the, you know how masonry is about women, and so they weren't interested in going that far. Uh, but I've always acknowledged her contributions and believe that in any world of real justice her name would be on the book as well as mine so well, maybe one day it always, that's how i've always felt uh in fact pete norman from texas uh, has a copy of morals and Dogma signed by her really? and he claims he has the only copy signed by the real author <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so how much funny. longer after that was so, it so anyway that was october of 1987. So then I'm brainstorming with Cheryl about how to organize the book. It wasn't so much about the material itself, but just how do you organize it? How do you put it together so that it works for the average person? Um, and we were making pretty good progress. And February was coming up, 1988. And in February 88, as in is every February, the Grand Masters Conference was coming up. And I knew a lot of SGIGs went to the Grand Masters Conference. And I had been going to the Grand Masters Conference since I was a senior deacon in my mother lodge. Really? That's yeah. interesting. Well, just to learn what yeah. was going on. Um, anyway, I called up the chairman of the Committee on Ritual and said, bunch of us are going anyway, we should have a meeting at the Grand Masters Conference and settle some issues about how this book would be organized and make sure I'm on the right track. And he said, no, I'm sorry, I'm too busy. We can't do that. And he said, oh, okay. So I hung up and I called Fred. <laughs> and I said, Fred, I had come up with this idea to meet at the Grand Masters Conference, but the SGIG in Texas doesn't think it's a good idea. And he said, really? He said, where are you? I said, in my kitchen. He said, stay there. I'll call you back in five minutes. So I hung up and I wait, tick tock goes the clock and all of a sudden ring goes the phone and I pick it up and it's Fred. And he says, I have arranged for the entire committee on ritual and ceremonial forms and you to meet in my office next week in Washington, DC. And he brought that whole committee to D.C. to meet with me. <laughs> wow! So must have really pissed off the chairman of that committee. <laughs> but that's how Fred was. 
and he was dead serious about this. And uh, so we met in his office and uh, they approved what I was doing in terms of my form and structure. And so I said, good, so now I know what to do, I'll go home and do it. And I had that book at the printers by August of 88. Wow. And did they immediately start giving it out to all Scottish Rite Masons right after? Yep. Oh, well. They certainly did, and they have ever since. So, And that's how that got written. And then I finished the other books, and they published those. <laughs> now, were you involved yet in the Grand Line in Arizona at that time, or no? Oh, no. No, really? No. When did you get uh, appointed to the Grand Line in Arizona? About, I don't know, 1999, 2000. I was Grand Master in 2006, so, you know, you can figure it out. Backtracking. Who appointed you? Don Monson. And really, Don Monson, okay. And, and what was his, uh, what were the position he gave you? What Junior was Grand Steward. It's the same every year for everybody. But, I mean, you didn't do anything else like DDGM or... Oh, I had been what we then called area reps. Okay, before area they rep. were district deputy grand masters, they had some other name, and before they had that name, they were area reps. Okay, and I was an area rep for Southern Arizona. I did uh, Safford and uh, Wilcox and Benson and Bisbee and Tombstone. It was hard. The big geographic area. Yeah, it, yeah. Was, it was very difficult, but I did that, and then. I was Grand Orator for Oscar, Oscar Lyons, mm -hmm. uh, who was the one who appointed Don Monson to the Grand Lodge line. Really? Uh. Yeah, so Oscar Lyon was my Masonic grandfather, and he was appointed by Chuck Shoup. Yep, uh, we have his picture hanging at our lodge. I, I don't know who Chuck Shoup was. Yeah. Anyway, never have looked it up. Um, I've heard you tell a story about you're you're notoriously forget to be places. Is that would you say that's an accurate representation? Uh, yeah, I sometimes. And I've heard you tell a story about you got a call. You were supposed to be somewhere. I don't know if you remember the story. I think you said you were driving your Corvette. You remember the story I'm talking about? Keep going. Uh, you were in Tucson, and I believe you had to be in Prescott or Flagstaff. Oh, Prescott, yeah. And okay. uh, by driving at around average 125 miles an hour, <laughs> I was able to make it to Prescott in time to deliver a talk. <laughs> How fast did you make that drive? I, I don't know, but it was pretty quick. <laughs> I, uh, I did a serious uh, risk. I never got a ticket, so I was very lucky. Didn't wreck it and kill myself or anybody else. Right. And I made it to Prescott, delivered that talk, and I wasn't even late. There were other people. <laughs> there were other people still giving theirs, and so I lucked out. So tell me a little bit about: Is there anybody? You've already thrown some names out there, so you've mentioned some of this. But are there are there men that really stand out to you that were the real example of the Freemasonry, and you re, and really kind of helped ignite that fire in you? Well, you know. Yeah, they, in, in the York Rite, I was particularly impressed by Earl Wonder, who's now our senior past grand master. Uh, Who I know and love, yes. And uh, Earl, at, when I was 
knew in the York right Earl finally had within a couple of years had been uh, elected as the illustrious Grandmaster Cryptic Masons of Arizona and uh, so he kind of gave me an awareness that there was even such a thing as a state line. I didn't know that because Scottish Rite doesn't have that. A state line? Yeah, a line of officers at the state oh, level. Oh, oh, I see. Okay. I'm yeah. sorry. I was ambiguous there. Uh, on the Supreme Council, there was an SGIG from Colorado, now passed away, named Jess Gurn, who was a college professor uh, in dramatic arts. And he was, for a while, chairman of the Committee on Ritual. And he was, I think, a real mentor for me. He, was, he and I had really good conversations and got along very well. And I would go up and attend reunions in Denver just to spend time with him. And uh, He was certainly very influential. There have been, all along the way, various people. Um, in my mother lodge, F. Randolph, Bob Hannon, and Dick Kidwell, and Tony Navarrete, most of those guys have all passed away now, but they were very influential in, in teaching me what it meant to be dignified in masonry. Uh, they took their jobs within the craft very seriously and Dick Kidwell was grandmaster for the 100th anniversary of Masonry in Arizona. Oh, really? Yeah. Hmm. 1982? Yeah. 81, 82. 81, 82. I came in in August, and so he had got, got out that previous June, a uh, couple of months before that. So you mentioned being dignified in, in Freemasonry. Expand on that a little bit more. Why is that important? Well, you know, it saddens me that we don't have enough emphasis in Masonic education on behavior. When we talk about Masonic education, we tend to think in terms of history, philosophy, symbolism, right? No, oh, I don't want to. Right, yep. Uh, and a lot about symbolism. Our education seems yeah, to be focused on that a lot. Yeah, and we don't talk a lot about proper behavior. And yet, when you look at the ritual, that's what it's emphasizing. You know, you look at what we obligate ourselves to in the obligation, and, it, and those are behavioral criteria. Not that we are going to, we don't promise to learn the history of masonry. We don't promise to be experts at its symbolism. Those aren't aren't it's what true. we talk about. We talk about how to be a really good man. It's one of those petty things that bothers me. Uh, we say that masonry takes better men, takes good men and makes them better men. Well, grammatically that sounds right because you think of good, better, best. But philosophically, Aristotle said that the good was the highest ideal. And so I would prefer we change that and say that we take the better men of society and try to make them truly good men. And then it would be philosophically correct. Uh, and that's a great challenge to do that. Uh, 
we sometimes are sloppy in our grammar and would be offended if someone corrected us, even though grammar is one of the seven liberal arts and sciences yes, of, it is. <laughs> of the second degree, and we pretend like it's not there. So we pay no attention to it. Oh, there are, we, we will say to a brother, well, if you do that or say that or whatever, I'm gonna file Masonic charges on you or something like that. Um, but the charges tell us that we're to whisper good counsel in their ear. And whisper means you don't say it out loud where other people can hear it. But we are often very willing to make that kind of noise and say those kinds of things and make those kinds of threats and not to whisper good counsel. Not to explain to a brother what he's doing that maybe he ought to rethink it in terms of its impact on other brothers or public perception of the fraternity. And we need to start, I believe, focusing on correcting our behavior. Especially with what we deal with with social media. Oh, yeah. I, I, if I had my way, I'd say let's just not do it. It provides very little positive opportunities and a lot of negative ones and once you make a mistake in the social media environment you can't take it back yeah, it's there it's forever, there forever. Yep. and uh, <clears throat> it's better to not be on it I haven't been on it for a very long time and when I do I mostly put poems on it I've written or photographs of my progress on my library or that I'm building down in Tucson so let's something let's you know, move to let's move to that library thing. I know you've been doing a lot of work. Tell us a little bit about what's going on with this library and and your vision for that and why you started this project. Well, anyone who's been to Tucson knows that the library we have is pretty pathetic. It's just a couple of bookcases stuck in a conference room. It's not even a library. It's got a sign that says it's a library, but nobody uses it as a library. They go in there and have meetings because there are conference tables in there. We even rent it for businesses to have meetings in there and that sort of thing. It is by no means anything a reasonable person would call a library, except that it's a collection of books stacked up on a couple of bookshelves. Uh, and it's not a bad collection of books, actually. It's not very big, but it, what it is, it's not bad. Um, but I was very, always feeling like it was very inadequate and that it's not getting used because it's so small and people don't know it's there. They don't know what books to check out. Uh, that's another weakness in our Masonic education is we give our members very little guidance about what they should be reading and what maybe they shouldn't be, or if they are, at least be critical of it. Uh, I regularly run into problems with books. This is maybe off the subject a little bit, but I was at uh, Research Lodge Number 2 meeting at Tucson Lodge Number 4, and the paper for the evening was a book report. Heaven forbid, that's what it was. <laughs> and it was a book report on John Robinson's book, Born in Blood. Now, of all the books about Freemasonry that exist, that surely ranks as one of the most worthless. <laughs> but this man began, this brother, 
began to extol the virtues of this book and to say every Mason should read it and that they would learn the history of Masonry and really what really, really happened in the past and all this. And I'm sitting here listening to him say this to our members and I don't know what to do. I don't want to hurt his feelings and, and say this is the dumbest thing I ever heard in my life. I don't want to contradict him. I mean, it's his paper. I could have asked some probably pregnant questions which would have led us down the right path, but I didn't even want to do that. I didn't want to offend him at all. Uh, it discourages people from doing research or book reports even, and I didn't want to do that. But then I was stuck with the problem. Now I've got all these members who've heard this brother extol the virtues of this totally worthless book that's just absolute trash. And what do I do? And I just let it go. I thought, well, I'll let them know my judgment about the matter when the time comes. If it comes up in a conversation, I'll say what I think. But uh, the book is full of factual errors. And he knew it. And that was part of the reason I was so frustrated about that book, is because John Robinson knew what he was doing. He was not interested at all in telling the truth. He was interested in telling a story, and it was one he made up. And that was what he wanted to do. And it sold a lot of copies, and a lot of people have bought into it, and I regularly see it quoted, and yet it's a problem. So we don't have any critical faculty going on in Freemasonry about what to read or what not to read. And I would say even the bad books like Born in Blood and The Hiram Key and those kinds of things, uh, you got to read them because other people will read them and you need to be able to discuss them and critique them from the point of view of someone who's actually read the book. You can't just say, I heard it was a bad book. You have to be able to read it and understand it. Uh, as a bad book, if it is. Practice good scholarship. Yeah, and uh, we don't train in that because we don't have people trained to teach it. And so we have the problem in masonry not only of what to teach, but how to teach the teachers so that these kinds of problems don't exist. But anyway, I have in my personal collection, it's about 16,000 books, and I'm pushing 80, and I asked my kids if they wanted them, and they said no. So I asked my wife if she wanted them if I predeceased her, and she said no. <laughs> and so I went down to Scottish Rite, and here's this big, huge church building that was given to us a long time ago and had been used for rummage sales and youth group meetings and various things. And I decided I was going to turn that church, built in 1908, into the library for the Scottish Rite. And I've been working on that project about, I don't know, four or five years, probably. Still working. How, how close are you to finishing it? I don't know. People come in and say, when is this going to be done? And I say, when you stop asking that question and start, <laughs> start helping. <laughs> but uh, I was there when you were just working on the forms on the ceiling where all the Band vaults. Uh, band vaults, yes, I couldn't band remember vaults. the name. Yeah, so I was there when you were working on those, and it was still in the early stages. Now we have 100 panels in the ceiling, plus the panels in the band vaults, 
and they're all done. I just need molding put on some of them. Wow. And they're all finished. And I did every single one of them on my dining room table. No kidding? Yeah. Now, what about bookcases? Do you have those yet? Bob Kelly, who's assisting me in this project and doing a beautiful job, uh, is going to start the bookcases probably in about, I'm guessing, a month to a month and a half. Oh, wow. So they're close. Yeah. Uh -huh. So we can start on the bookcases. But there's 35 some bookcases to build. It's so, a lot of work. Yeah, and they're all going to be done by hand. So. What are they going to be made out of? Quarter sawn oak. Oh, such a beautiful wood. <laughs> well, the church itself was built in Cortisano. Oh, okay. And so we have exposed some of the painted wood. They can. I, it's hard to believe they actually painted over Cortisano mm. oak. And so we've had to strip paint. Strip. They had a red brick building, and they covered it up with. White stuff, stucco. Stucco, yeah. Man. And we've had to jack all that stuff off, and we're not even done with that. So prior to this project, I know that you'd been working on the Egyptian room I did and Egyptian some other rooms. Room. Now, yeah. before you before you go down the road, tell me what what is it? Well, let me. I'll just we'll just go down there. So, what are those other projects you're doing in the temple, including the Egyptian room, and and how'd you get started on those? Well, the Egyptian room came about because. J. Michael Atchley, who's now deceased, but was personal rep for a while, and his wife Peggy, who was helping with rentals of the building, um, had taken a trip to Pennsylvania and seen the Grand Lodge building in Pennsylvania. I haven't seen it, but I've heard the story. It's quite impressive. It's quite impressive, and it has an Egyptian room. Oh, okay. I don't particularly like the Egyptian room, but it has an Egyptian room. So anyway, they came back all a Twitter about this Egyptian room. And I came in the building and I was walking up the stairs and Peggy was at the top of the stairs and she said to me, I want an Egyptian room. <laughs> and I said, okay. So then I had to think, where could I put an Egyptian room? So I'm wandering around the building and up on the third floor there was an old lodge room that used to belong to York Wright uh, that had been used by the Childhood Language Disorder Clinic when it was up on third floor as a kind of storeroom. They just put stuff in it. But I had got a building for them up on 6th Avenue and Speedway and they had moved up there and so the third floor was empty. And so there was this high ceiling beautiful lodge room that was old and dirty and you know, I mean, it was... Wasted built, space. Yeah, it was built in 1950 at a 15-foot ceiling, and people had smoked in it for 20 years, oh, and so oh, oh. it was a disaster. And it was painted this ugly green paint, and it was just a horrible room. So I went down and I said to Mike Atchford, I said, Pay once a Egyptian room, do you mind if I use the Roscoe's room, which is what that room was called. And uh, he said, yeah, that's fine. And I said, okay, and I never said a word to him after that about what I was going to do. Or you just started? I just went to work. And what I, what's there is what's there. Any any stories about how you came up with certain details in there, how you came up with the layout, or what you wanted to put where? You know, it sort of grew organically in my mind. I had a picture of what I wanted it to look like, and I sort of tried to 
make the room look like the picture that was in my mind, and that required some adjustment of the picture in my mind and, and some research to try to find the pieces that I needed to put it together. But, you know, you can find anything if you look hard enough. And so I found some Egyptian statues and sphinxes, and my wife made the curtains. Oh, really? Now, is that done? Is that room done? No, it is not finished. Not done, there's, okay. There's little details to do. But I did the ceiling in copper, gold, and turquoise because those were the minerals mined in ancient Egypt and modern Arizona. Nice. Wow. And so there's a meaning to the things sure. that are in there. And I did the black and white checkered wainscoting with uh, acoustical tiles so that I could get some sound absorption because there was all these hard surfaces, hard surface floor. Have there been any degrees or anything in there yet? Yeah, we've done the 31st degree, which is the Egyptian degree in the Scottish Rite up there, and there have been several third degrees done there. Wow. Okay. Uh, Tom Brooker from Glendale, or Peoria, I guess he's from. The one who makes uh, all the gavels. Makes all the gavels. He made uh, sounding boards and gavels and uh, the staffs for the deacons and stewards and all that stuff. Oh, wow. He made all the all the necessary accoutrements so that we could put the degrees on in that room. And uh, he did a beautiful job. Wow. He built the uh, secretary and treasurer's tables. So how long have you been in Freemasonry as of today? I don't know, whatever, 1982 to now, 40 years. 40 years. Yeah. So what is it, do you think, that keeps you, you've still got quite a passion after 40 years. Well, I stay busy with new things. So like, if I finish the Egyptian room, and I finish the library, and I'm still alive and thinking straight, <laughs> I will start the Greek temple. The Greek temple is your next project. My next project's a Greek temple, and dedicated to Pythagoras. And I have essentially designed that temple. It's in my head. Where is it going to go? I have a place for it. That's all I'm going <laughs> to say. It's a secret. <laughs> I found a place. But I guess one of the things I want to get to is what keeps you... You talked a little bit about one of the things that we don't do in masonry is by emphasizing behavior. What is it that keeps you excited about Freemasonry and wanting to pass it on to other people? It's incapable of improvement. The people who participate in it are capable of improvement, but Freemasonry is incapable of improvement. Now, how many things can you say that about? Not a whole lot. So it's perfect, you're saying? Yeah. Well, it asks us to behave a certain way, and if every single Mason behave that way, every single person in the world who could be would be a Mason. And what kind of a world would it be if the entire world, if every man in the world was a Mason and lived according to its precepts? It'd be fantastic. <laughs> it's incapable of improvement. Hmm. And so I don't have to excuse my commitment to such a thing. I don't have to explain it. So to give people a little context here about your Masonic resume, 
you are a past grandmaster in Arizona. You were a past master of your mother lodge. I'm past master of, yes, Epps Randolph Lodge and Adobe 41 and Southern Arizona Research Lumber number two and Research Lodge number five in Kingman, which is named after me. And then what are your titles, your past titles in York Rite and Scottish Rite? I was head of the Grand Chapter, head of the Grand Council, head of the Grand Commandery. In Arizona? Yeah, and I'm a past prior of the KYCH and past preceptor in a wilderness tabernacle in the Holy Royal Arch Knight Templar Trace. I'm the senior living past sovereign of the Red Cross of Constantine. And if I'd catch up my dues, I'd be a Shriner. <laughs> but what, what about the Scottish Rite? You are now, what's your title in Scottish Rite I now? I am Deputy of the Supreme Council. Deputy of the Supreme Council. Does that mean you're SSIG? SGIG. SGIG, I'm sorry. No. Sovereign Grand Inspector General is a different, it's the same office with a different title. Okay. I am the senior member of the Scottish Rite in Arizona. Okay. I have substantially the powers of an SGIG, but I don't wear the cap, which is purple. Okay. I have, deputies have their own distinctive caps. And they're by and large about the only thing I can't do that an SGIG can do is confer the degrees for free. They have that power. I'm not allowed to do that, <laughs> but an SGIG is. Uh, and then there are a couple of minor uh, administrative kinds of things. What are the, since you've been through uh, so many of these chairs and these processes in York Rite and Scottish Rite, what are the differences that you think, or what? Are, I guess what are the key uh, things that York Rite teaches a man versus Scottish Rite? What are the, you're in both, you obviously see value in both. I think there's a lot of overlap in what is taught. Uh, this comes about because of the sheer number of degrees. They run out of things to talk about when they're talking about a moral code. There's only so many things that you can do that is morally proper, and so uh, there tends to be some overlap and repetition of things. And some of the stories are very similar. The 13th degree is the Royal Arch degree of the Scottish Rite, and that's the Royal Arch degree of York Rite has its own one, and they essentially tell the same story, and both reveal the true word right. uh, that is not given in the Blue Lodge, and it's the same word in both cases. Thank goodness. <laughs> could, could be awkward if they were different. Confusion, <laughs> otherwise. Um, and so. What you find is a kind of difference in emphasis in leadership. Uh, the, the York Rite is very democratic, and the Scottish Rite is very dictatorial. Hmm. Uh, I'm, I was not elected by the brethren. The person who appointed me was not elected except by the Supreme Council. All Just appointed you. Yeah. yeah, and all pe and those people are all not elected. And I appoint a personal representative in each valley who is not elected. Okay. I appoint the secretary who is not elected. And so the elected officers of the valleys are subordinate to 
unelected administrators. Which enforces more a central authority. Yes. And that's talked about in the Red Hat ceremony, which is a public ceremony, so I can comment on it. Um, and it says, you know, we have this system, and if you don't like it, quit. <laughs> Maybe this ain't They're, for you. It's very straightforward, you know. If, you, if you're unhappy with the way we do things, you don't have to plumb. Are there any other stories you want to tell that maybe I haven't touched on or any things you've left out of kind of your journey in Freemasonry? Well, that would require some kind of thought, I guess. <laughs> um, yeah, I've had some pretty amazing adventures. I, uh, when I wrote my PhD dissertation, it was on Cuban women. And so I spent some time in Cuba, and I was aware that Cuba had a Grand Lodge and individual lodges. And I checked the statistics, and it turned out that there were about a hundred lodges in Cuba, uh, and that Arizona did not recognize the Grand Lodge of Cuba. And so I began to do research. You were a Mason already at I this point? I was a Mason already. And uh, this was at the administration of Kleindienst as Grand Master, who was a railroad clerk out of Wilcox, not Wilcox, uh, Winslow, up on I-40. Uh, and I discovered that the Committee on Recognition for the Grand Master's Conference considered the Grand Lodge of Cuba regular. And so I put together a package and at Grand Lodge, at Kleindienst's Grand Lodge, I presented to the brethren the result of my research and moved that we recognize the Grand Lodge of Cuba and it passed. Wow. And Kleindienst appointed me the Grand Representative of the Grand Lodge of Cuba near Arizona and I have held that position ever since. To this day? To this day. Wow. When was the last time you were to Cuba? Uh, about 2009, I think. And I attended Lodge there. Really? Good. Yeah. Wow. Uh, several people have attended Lodge in Cuba from Arizona. Sid Lailawan was there. Uh, Jerry, past Grand Master Jerry Lankin was there. The late Charles Ballenberg and his wife Ruth were there. We took a, a Masonic trip that was sponsored by Scottsdale Lodge to Cuba. Really? Yeah. And we had a nice time. And of course, I had been there a bunch of times before because I had done research for my doctoral dissertation. Uh, but it was, we had a nice time. Have you done much international travel in masonry? Oh, some. When I was Grand Master, I was invited to the Grand Lodge of National of France, and so I went to Paris and attended the Grand Lodge there, went into southern France and visited some lodges in southern France. Um, not a lot, though. I wouldn't say I've been a lot. I've been to the Grand Lodge of England, but I have not been to an English lodge. Yeah, same here. I went in, tw actually in 2017, I was there. I didn't get to attend a lodge, but I went to Ugly, the building, and the toured. Building, and, yeah. yeah. On, saw their library. On Great yeah. Queen Street. Yep. Nice library. Yep. Nice library. 
They have a lot of aprons on display. That's what yeah. it, one of the things I noticed. Yeah. It's kind of a combination museum and library. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to have a similar kind of thing when my library opens. What's the name of your library going to be? Scottish Rite. Scottish Research, Research Masonic Library. Library, something. I haven't come up with a name yet. Isn't there a research lodge named after you? Yes, in Kingman. In Kingman, okay. Yeah. The Rex Hutchins Research Lodge number? Five. Five, yeah. okay. Um, so anyway, I, I mean, various and sundry things have happened in my life in masonry. It's always been loads of fun. I've had, after the book came out, Bridge to Light, and became the standard book given to all the Scottish Rite new Scottish Rite Masons, I received a lot of invitations to come and speak. And I have enjoyed those traveling around the southern jurisdiction, hither and thither, pretty much everywhere uh, really? over the last 40 years, which is almost, the Bridge Light's been the book given out now, I think, for 35 years, so wow. it's a long time. And during that time, I've had the opportunity to visit a lot of valleys and see a lot of reunions and visit with the brethren. And it's been, it's been very rewarding. I've appreciated that opportunity. Have you been to the uh, Valley of Chicago? Uh, no, I've been to Chicago. Uh, they have a building out in the suburbs there. now, and I was impressed when I went there. They have these giant dressing rooms. They have all these, it, it's like backstage of a theater. They have all these stations with chairs and lights and mirrors and all the wigs are on stands and it's it's pretty impressive yeah that's northern jurisdiction oh that's right so I it's not southern i don't okay. get invitations <laughs> um, the northern jurisdiction has an attitude about pike that's kind of negative hmm. and as a proponent of pike as a legitimate scottish right scholar and leader I'm not as popular in the northern <laughs> And I'm very critical of their degrees because they change them all the time. Oh, really? Yeah, I've said any number of times they don't even have degrees. They have plays, mm. and they change them as they feel like it. And that doesn't endear me to them very much. So I don't expect to get a lot of invitations from them, and I haven't. So what would you say, in closing, I guess, what would you say to uh, people who might be listening to this, might be interested in Freemasonry, maybe they've been in Freemasonry for 10 years, 20 years, what, what would you say to, the, to interested brothers, interested people, and also brothers in the craft? The problem with that question is that the answer is, by definition, fright. And what I mean is, the answer obviously is, you get out of it what you put into it. <laughs> and that is so that is true trite. of yeah. so many things that it seems hollow to say it. And yet, uh, I have been successful, I think, in Freemasonry uh, primarily because I just put a lot of energy into it. You know, I read the books, I studied, I taught, I listened when other people taught and asked questions, and, you know, brought a critical faculty so that I wasn't snowed into believing things that were irrational or ridiculous or, you know, like they, we 
find in some books. Uh, and and so, you know, I, the only thing I can say to any Mason or person who would even want to be a Mason is, you know, it's an opportunity to better yourself. It has religious components without doctrine. They don't tell you what to believe, but they tell you how to behave. And some people need to be told how to behave. I did. <laughs> I don't have any doubt about that. And uh, in some respects, I have failed the fraternity in being as good I, as I could have been and should have been. But Freemasonry will teach you that you're, you can be better than you believe you can be. And uh, to the extent that you commit yourself to what it teaches and attempt with the best effort you can come up with uh, to practice what it teaches, it will, it will take a, the, the better men of society and make them truly good men. And I don't know anything that does it better. Well, I would agree with you. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to sit here and do this interview. I really appreciate uh, all your thoughts and, and your time and telling your story. My pleasure. Thank you.